The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile, and his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises, instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. And so right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests too who run the temple. They not only tolerate but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which of course they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. And so we have a lot to talk about today. Um, this is... Uh, this is Israel's way of breaking up with God in chapter 2. So, so last week, if you were with us, you know, right, right out of the gate, uh, Israel is, is struggling with God. They're having issues with God. They're angry with God. They feel like God has let them down. And now they're just kind of in this, like, if I can sort of use relational language, they're, they're breaking up with God. Uh, have you ever, have you ever um, broken up with somebody or had somebody break up with you? You know, I'm talking about like before you get married and, and so painful. And I think one of the most difficult parts of it is just trying to, if you're the person who's especially, if you're doing the breaking up, it's like trying to find the right words. Like it's so painful. And so uh, I was thinking about what that's been like, you know, before I met my wife and um, 
you know, actually, Karen, I, I, I actually broke up with her a few times, so I, she had to hear some of my lines. You know, she'll tell you back there. But a- anyway, um, I, I looked up on the Internet uh, some of the famous breakup lines. And so um, may, maybe you've used these. This, this first one is probably the most famous breakup line, and I've had it used on me, and I've used it, unfortunately. And it's, it's this, it's not you, it's me. Maybe you've used that line before. How about this one? I, I, wanna, I just want us to take it slow. In other words, so slow. I don't know how to tell you that I just don't want to be with you anymore. That's another one. How about this one? The only thing that looks good on you is distance. Oh, I hope nobody's ever used that line on you. Um, I seem to have lost your number. Can you lose mine? Another really, that's brutal, brutal. Um, how about this one? We haven't got chemistry. What we've got is history. We're over. This is like for real. I mean, I, like these are some of the lines that are used. And then so I, I'll spare you some of the other ones that are on here. Um, this is one of the worst breakup lines ever and is actually original to me. Um, so I was breaking up with this gal. We had a year-long relationship. And I didn't know what to say. And again, I, what I'm trying to get is at the tension of trying to break up and trying to find the right words. I remember in this moment, I was trying to be profound. I thought, well, maybe if I just say something that's really profound, that will help the, the situation. And so um, I said to her, think of it this way. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. To which she looked at me and she said, yeah, your beginning, my end. Okay, it's like, ooh, that didn't go down so well. Anyway, the big idea is, is relationship. Israel is breaking up with God, and sometimes we've done that. I've had seasons in my life where if, if I talked about it or thought about it in a relational sense, it would be like that. It was kind of like, God, I'm not really enjoying you right now. I'm not liking you right now. I may, might even be angry with you right now. And so I'm just kind of backing away from the relationship and kind of breaking up with you. Well, uh, God, right the very first chapter, he says this, I have loved you. We established last week that God loves us no matter how we behave. Uh, he loves us unconditionally. He doesn't always love what we do, but he, lo- he just loves us. He can't help himself. And so he comes around, he says, I love you. But Israel answers back, and they say, really? How have you loved us? Because we're not feeling the love, and they just begin to really come out with all of their anger and their, their issues that they're having with God. So what we want to talk about this morning is like what happens in our relationships when we allow our heart to just drift away from God, when we, maybe we don't intentionally break up with God, so to speak, but we just kind of start drifting away. I, I find that most people, when they sort of start losing their relationship with God, it doesn't happen in one day. Most, I, I don't know anybody who's ever woken up one day and said, you know what, I'm done with you, God, I'm finished, I hate you, I'm going to move on with my life. No, it just, it just kind of happens by, by degrees. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the last uh, book of the Old Testament. Again, it is Malachi, and he's got some really difficult things to say. So God is using him to speak to to Israel. And I'm using the message translation, so you might have another translation that's going to sound a little bit different. It begins this way, verse 10. Don't we all come from one Father? Aren't we all created by the same God? So why can't we get along? Isn't that a great question? I mean, think about it. From all the history of the world, we just can't get along. We have wars. We have divorces. We have flare-ups. We have gang violence. We have, I mean, just everything. You just look at it and you go, why can't we get along? 
Why, why do we desecrate the, con- the covenant of our ancestors that binds us together? Judah has cheated on God, a sickening violation of trust in, uh, in Israel and Jerusalem. And Judah has desecrated the holiness of God by falling in love and running off with foreign women, women who worship alien gods. God's curse on those who did, do this. Drive them out of house and home. They're no longer fit to be part of the community, no matter how many offerings they bring to God, to the God of the angel armies. When it ever says God of the army angels, it, it's talking about Yahweh, God. Verse 13. And here's the second offense. You filled the place of worship with your whining and sniveling because you don't w- get what you want from God. Do you know why? Simple. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride. And now you've broken those, those vows. You've broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made a marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of a marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. Verse 16, he says something very bold. Verse 16, he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. And he ends by saying in verse 16, don't cheat. Wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Our hearts begin to drift and we begin to lose our way with God, just really like being a part of, of that relationship. And so what happens is, is we feel the conflict. So here's what, I, I can speak for myself. When I'm not um, doing well with God, when I'm, feeling, when I'm not feeling connected to God, when I feel like I can't hear God, things aren't going well, not only does it affect my relationship with God, but it affects my relationship with everybody else. Because I'm just not as nice. And I'm just not as patient. And it just, it just affects me. And so uh, I could just say probably through the years, my wife could probably speak to this, that, that when I'm having struggles with God, uh, I'm having struggles with everybody else too, you know, and, and including uh, the most significant person in my life, which is my wife. And, and, and she feels it. And you, you, you ever heard that expression, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? See, that's the thing. I'm actually being selfish when I'm like bailing out on God because it's not just about me and God. It's about me and everybody else around me that is affected by this, this conflict that I'm having within in myself. Verse 10 says this, don't we all come from one father and aren't we all created by the same God? We're all like, yeah, it's, what, a, what a beautiful thing. And he says, okay, that's true. He says, so why can't you get along with each other? That's the age-old question I, uh, some months ago, I, I uh, had this book on my screen. I want to bring it up again. Uh, I, I really, really was impacted by this book, Unoffendable. And I would highly recommend it. This is, you can get a paperback. That's a picture of the book that I had. I went through it. And, and the reason that I'm so um, big on this book, I think it's such a great book, is because uh, I'm offendable. And I think you are too. And I think one of the things that gets in the way of us all getting along with each other is we just get offended. Has there ever been a time, I wonder, in the American culture when so many people were yelling at each other at the same time? Like, they're just, we're not talking well. If you're listening to the media, uh, if you're looking around, you're just seeing everybody's yelling. And you, and you just, I don't know, there's this thing inside of me that says, wow, can't, can't we just all get along? Can't we just kind of settle down a little bit and actually have conversations with each other? Instead of yelling at each other all, all the time. So that this book, I mean, it hit me right between the eyes. Because 
I, the, I grabbed it. I thought, that's kind of an interesting um, title. And I opened it up, and I started reading a little bit, and then I was immediately offended. <laughs> I was. I was offended because this guy who wrote the book thought I shouldn't be offended. And so let me, let me tell you, you're going to laugh at this, but let me tell you what offends me, all right? And maybe we're all wired different. So what offends me is people that are offended. That's it, right there. I'm like, take a chill pill. Get over it. And it's just the way I'm wired. And so, like, why are you all yelling at each other? Why can't we all just be nice to each other? And so, and then it gets, I get all worked up, and then I, all of a sudden I have an attitude. Well, in the book, and it's a very biblical book, um, and this follows the life of Jesus, and it really talks about the fact that if anybody ever had a right to be offended, it would be Jesus. If there's ever anybody that really could have yelled back at the culture and said, well, it was Jesus, but he chose not to. He, he, he just lived this beautiful life where he just, no matter who you were, he accepted you, he loved you, he wasn't offended at you. So read the book, all right? Because I actually have found that since I read the book, I'm much less offended. And it's really helped me with my, my, my own life. And, and I, it's helped me to get along better with people. I think one of the things that we sometimes miss is how much God wants us to be unified. The priority that he puts on us getting along and, and being unified. If you go to John chapter 17, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. And he could have prayed about anything. I, I don't know what you would pray about before you went to a cross. I'd just be going, get me out of here. But this is the, pray, the prayer that he's praying, and it's a long, long, long prayer. And so we just took a couple of verses, but, but he capture what he's saying here. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about his followers that all of them may be one. Did you catch that? That all of them may be what? One. one. Okay, together, unified. Je- Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He's basically saying, Father, we have this beautiful relationship and it, it's, 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 it's very unified and, and, and I want everybody else to have that relationship with us. Interesting thing about this prayer, it was never answered. But it is being answered. When you think about it, you know, Jesus prayed a lot of things, but around the world today and for all these years later, 2,000 years later, there are pockets and churches and places where this prayer is being answered. And I think it's one of the things that draws people towards faith when they actually see a bunch of Christians, a bunch of Christ followers that actually get along. I mean, that's, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So he puts this great emphasis on like, let's all be unified, let, let, let's all be one. Now, so we talked about the first thing that kind of gets in our way, and sometimes we feel like we want to break up with God, is, is just drifting away from God, conflict. But what happens next? Well, not, now I'm not feeling it, and I'm having issues with God, and so that means I'm probably having issues with other people. But also, now I'm starting to find, I, I'm going to go chasing stuff to fill the void where God was. Because if you don't have God in your life, well, there's something that's going to got to fill that void. So, so now I'm going to start, maybe it's your career. And you go, you know what? I'm just going to get fully to my career. And, and you don't even know it, but sort of pretty soon the career becomes your God. And then it just affects all the other relationships of your life. Or maybe, maybe it's just money or, or maybe it's a sport or an activity and you just totally throw yourself into it because you're just not feeling it with God. You're kind of breaking up with God. And so you're like, no, I'm just going to go do something else. And this is what happens to Israel. They're going, God, you're just, you know, we're not enjoying you. Uh, it, it's not working for us. So we're just going to go do our own thing. That's why in verse 11, it says, Judah has cheated on God. 
God sees it. He's like, so, so you're kind of breaking up with me, right? Really what they're doing. He says, a sickening violation of trust in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the holiness of God by, by, by falling in love and running off with foreign women, women who worship alien gods. So God had a, a relationship with Israel. It was a very special covenant relationship with Israel. And part of the deal was this. You're only to marry people within our own faith. But they said, nah, not only are we not enjoying our relationship with you, we're going to chase, we're going to divorce our wives in many cases, and then we're just going to go chase after all these other women. And God is calling them out on it. Maybe you ever thought like, well, how, how, do you, how does a person cheat on God? That's kind of weird. I mean, how do you cheat on God? So here's a, something to look at. Possibility you could be cheating on God. That you're doing something secretly and you're not sharing it with anybody else, maybe even a little bit ashamed of it, and you're like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Maybe it's your guilty little pleasure or something like that. And you know it's not right, but you're doing it. And you're thinking, well, I, I can't tell anybody. Of course God knows. It's kind of silly when we think, well, I don't want God to know. <clears throat> yeah. Every time you commit a certain behavior, there's a conviction or guilt. So you're, you know, whatever that is, you're like, eh. But you just keep doing it. There's a, there's a remorse and regret afterwards, you know, because you're cheating, right? You're, you're doing this thing, and you know it's not right, but, you know, so you're trying to fill that, that God void in your life. There's a decrease in spiritual self-awareness, which inevitably happens when, you, when we start to feel distance between us and God, that we're not as sensitive to anybody else around us. And, and finally, what happens is we have a difficult time hearing God because we're not enjoying our experience with God, and we're not leaning in anymore. And so therefore, we're not hearing. So these are just some indicators that you might be cheating on, on God. Let's go to verse 14. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your bride, and now you have broken those vows. And you've broken the faith bond with your vow to companion, your covenant wife. So he's, he's speaking to the issue, uh, two, two different issues. One is the marriage, which these guys are stepping out of their marriages to find other women. Uh, but he also, whenever he speaks about marriage, there's two ways that God speaks about it. He uses Adam as a metaphor for, in the New Testament particularly, between the church and, the, and us. The, the, we're the church and, and God. So, um, but in this case, he's actually calling these guys up because they're, they're getting divorced and they're, they're leaving their wives. I, I did two marriages this week. I performed two uh, marriage ceremonies, and it was really cool. I uh, both of them I did with the people that I have known for a long time, really great friends. And uh, many of you know, I've done a lot of marriages. I've done somewhere in the neighborhood of about 160 marriages I've performed throughout the years. And my favorite part, it's always my favorite part, is uh, when the song is playing and the bride is coming up and there's that moment when the bride and the groom are looking into each other's eyes. And it's just power. I'm like, yeah, it's just so precious. You know, I, I, sometimes I get so caught up that I have to keep myself from almost crying because it's just, it's just that, that, that moment when, when I see that. And my wish in that moment is that you would never, ever lose that. I saw it this week. I saw that look. I'm like, oh, that's so great. And why don't we... Well, then life happens, and one day there's kids, and they got the flu, and somebody lost a job. But God, God's desire is that we would always stay with that person. And, and I realize that it doesn't always work out that way. So here's the thing. When, when God said, I hate divorce, here's what every person in this room who ever has been divorced or has somebody divorce you or experienced it in some way, he didn't say, 
I hate the people that get divorced because God loves everybody. He says, I hate divorce. Because divorce, we all know, I mean, everybody in this room, undoubtedly, probably in some way, shape, or form, has been impacted by a divorce. It was either yourself, it was your parents, it was friends that got divorced, and it, it just became that. I, my wife Karen and I, years and years ago, uh, we had this family. We were super young, and they were super young, and they had kids, and we had kids, and we, were, we did vacations together, and it was just the most amazing relationship that we all had. We, we went to uh, beautiful places and experienced life together, and then the next thing we know, it just happens so suddenly, there's a separation between this couple, and then the next thing we know, they're divorced, and then it's awkward. I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, you know, you, 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 you don't want to choose sides. And like, how do we communicate with this one person, not offend the other person? And just all those things that happen because of divorce. So when God says, I hate divorce, that's what he hates. He says that, that tearing apart of relationships. And that's what he's calling these guys out on. Again, God is about unity, right? And that's his main goal for marriage, and that's his main goal for the church. So, so one day, a bunch of religious leaders, Pharisees, came over to Jesus. And um, have, you, have any of you guys ever seen those huge billboards that say easy divorce? You ever see that? Usually there's a picture of an attorney or something like that or a phone number up there. Easy divorce, you know. So first of all, there's no such thing. I've never talked to anybody who said, you know, divorce was a great experience for me. It was just wonderful. Not one person have I ever talked to who said divorce was good. So... In the, in the time of Jesus, the first century, for men, divorce was easy. Like if you were a Jewish man and you were displeased with your wife or whatever, the kind, it could be that she didn't cook that good, maybe you didn't like the way she looked anymore, anything, you could just come to her and go, hey, can I give you a certificate? We're getting divorced. So all of the, the favor was in the side of, of men. So here's what happens. So these guys come to Jesus. Some Pharisees came, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, well, Jesus, I'm glad you asked. Because Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And they're thinking, gotcha, okay? And then he says, it was because, Jesus calls him out, he said, it was because of your, your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote this law. And Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them for male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but, but they're one. Like, they were just missing the whole point. So that, that's, that's God's plan right there. Now, have you ever noticed that, that God has the ideal and we have our real? And the question is, how close is the real to the ideal? God has this high bar. Thank God he does, because if it was up to us to set the bar, whoo, we would just go down here. But God says, here's my bar. I, I, I'd like you to get married, and I'd like you to always be happy, and I'd like you to um, really get along, and I'd like uh, the church, because I look to the church, and I want you to love each other and care for each other and be compassionate and just don't care for yourself but care about people all around you. And that's just that's a great bar. But we know that sometimes our real doesn't hit his ideal. But we can't give up on it. We have to, we have to keep okay. Let, let's, just, let's just stay after it. Um, this is what it says in Colossians. Uh, by the way, I've read these, uh, these um, verses in many, many weddings. 
So how do we all get along? All right, this would be great to put on your wall someplace, on your refrigerator. And so listen to what it says. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people. I think that's a good place to start right there. That every morning that you wake up, you go, oh, wait a second. I'm a child of God. And that changes everything. Because I belong to God. I'm his kid. And so I'm going to live my life. I'm going to navigate my life in a, in a different way. And then he says, holy and dearly loved. So I've got to remember that I'm loved. Not only am I his child, man, he loves me a lot. And then I'm going to clothe myself with, and this is, wow, this is where, it's, like, this is a tall order right here. He says, so I'm going to be compassionate and with kindness and with humility and gentleness. And this last one is difficult for me, patience. Like, wow, God, you expect all that from me? And, and God said, yeah, because that's how you're going to get along. So he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, and there's that word, unity. I want you to get along. I want you to be one. And he said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And then the last one, oh, and by the way, just be thankful. And if you and I, I mean, that bar is, is high, right? If you and I use these principles, if we live this out in our life every single day, how much better would we get along with all, in all of our, if our different relationships? And so the question is, how do we nourish our relationships to honor God that way? Like, how, how do we actually live that out? Um, so we want to help you with that a little bit. The first thing is this. We always look to God right? The Bible says God is love. Everything about God is love. Um, And so we look to him, and we look to how God models love. So let's actually see how we model it. Jesus, in uh, John chapter 15, said this. One day, speaking to his followers and his disciples, he says, my command is this. By the way, he didn't say this is optional. So get this. He says, my command is this. Love each other. Well, how do we do that? As I've loved you. Hmm. Greater, has, greater love has no one than he lay down his life for one's friends. In other words, I died for you. You want to know how much to love? You need to love each other that much, that you literally lay your life down for other people. That's the kind of love that, that, he, that he's talking about. So we have to learn from Jesus, from Jesus how he actually navigated life in, in that particular way. So I want to give you an example of this. And you don't have to turn there, but let me just tell you the story, and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. So a lot of people, when you think of Jesus, especially if you're new to faith, you just think of Jesus as sort of this mythical figure, somebody that you saw in stained glass window, somebody historical figure. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. He had parents. He had brothers and sisters. He grew up in a neighborhood. He had friends. He had really good friends. And in, in this particular chapter of John, he has these three, friend, three friends. It's two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their brother named Lazarus. So these siblings. And they're always hanging out. They're probably right around the same age. And many of you know, Jesus, for the last three years of his life, uh, he's on tour. And he's traveling a lot. And he was stopped by this little town called Bethany, which is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. And when he, when he came to Bethany, he would always stop and see his very, very good friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And he'd have dinner with them. And I'm sure you can imagine they're laughing, having a great time together. Well, one day, Jesus gets the word sent to him, hey, Lazarus, you know, your really good friend Lazarus, he's super sick. 
And so you probably ought to go over and help him. So Jesus says, okay, and then he doesn't go right away. In fact, he spends a few days and he's got other plans. And then finally, when he and his disciples arrive, Lazarus has been dead for three days. And there, there's a funeral going on when he gets there. Now, here's, here's where it gets really, really complicated for Jesus. These are his really, really good friends. And the question is, like, how, how is he, how is he going to handle this? Um, I think if I were Jesus, I, I would have been tempted to run because here's what happens. Martha, before he can even get to the grave site, Martha greets him and she, and she just, she tears into him. You should have been here, Jesus. Why weren't you here? We sent you a word. You know, here he is. He's been dead for three days. And, you know, she's, she's really, really angry. And Jesus could have got defensive. He could have said, well, don't you realize what I'm going to do right now? Yeah, like, I'm going to resurrect your brother. How dare you? He didn't, he didn't say any of those things. He just leaned into it, and he didn't run, which is what you and I are sometimes tempted to do when, things get, when the tension kind of comes up in the relationship, isn't it? It's like, I, I don't want to deal with that. But he, he stays there. The, the second thing that we see that he does is he practices empathy on a whole different level than maybe even you and I would. The, the shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35 of John 11, and it simply says this, Jesus wept. So instead of just tearing into Martha, and by the way, when he went into the house to see Mary, he got the same treatment from Mary. She tore into him as well. He simply weeps, cries. I wonder how many of us, you know, in that moment when a good friend of ours is grieving, maybe somebody's died, maybe there's a breakup, a heartbreak, somebody's lost their career, something really dramatic and horrible. I wonder in those moments if the best thing we could do is just put our hands on somebody's shoulder and just cry with them. This is what Jesus models. The interesting thing about this is Jesus knows that in a matter of really uh, very, like maybe minutes, he's going to perform a resurrection. And he doesn't say, you know, what's wrong with you guys? He just cries with them. And then the last thing that, we, that he, we see, so after he's done with all of that and he does perform a resurrection, so the story ends really, really well. Go to the next chapter, what is he doing? He's cruising through Bethany again. He goes, hey, I'm going to stop and see these guys. We see that he was committed to time in the relationship. And time in a relationship equals love. Love equals time, time equals love in a relationship. So let's talk about relationships how can I protect the unity of my relationships? Because this is kind of the big idea for the entire message. They want to break up with God. God's going, I don't want you to break up with me. Come on, let's just talk about this. Let's get back together, all right? And then he's talking about their relationships with other people. And by the way, um, be nice to other people. And so here's a way that you can do it. And I'll leave you with this. First of all, when you're having a problem in a relationship, deal with conflict swiftly. I'm not going to ask how many of you just want to run for the hills when there's tension. I'm kind of like that. I used to be like that. And my way of dealing with conflict is just avoid it and just let time go by. You've probably heard that time heals. Not all the time. Not in those situations. I found that if, if you, there's a tension, if there's a conflict in a relationship, and you let time go by, it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. It breeds more suspicion. Things just get worse. And so even though we don't like it, 
the best thing we can do is immediately just come and draw attention to it. When I was in my early 30s, I went to Vanguard University. I was working on my, my graduate program there, and I took a, a course called Conflict Management. Now, here's the good news. I got an A in it. Here's the bad news. I flunked it horrible, horribly in real life. I mean, I, I, I just I thought, how could I be so bad at relationships, and yet I got an A in that course, okay? And, and, and so I had to learn how to not avoid conflict, and then how to actually do conflict, how, how, to, how to work through it. And then you got to believe the best versus assume the worst. I'm, I, I think in this room, there's probably two different kinds of people. We could almost maybe split it right down the middle. There's the people who, when somebody says something to them, and they're not sure which way to take it, they're going to take it in the negative. Kind of like, here, like well, what did you say? What did you, what did you mean by that? And they're, they're hearing it in kind of a negative way. And then, and then there's the other 50% that they hear it, and they always, like my wife Karen over here, my wife Karen just thinks everybody's wonderful. She just does, which is what I really love about her. When I fell in my love with my wife, I thought, man, she is so different. Because I don't, you know, I'm wired in a different way. I grew up differently. And so, I, you know, I don't trust people. I didn't used to. I'm a lot better now. My wife's affected me don't trust people. I've been pretty dinged up. I've been hurt by people, probably like a lot of you. So my first inclination is, what? What did you say? You talking to me? Huh? You talking to me? That's kind of my inclination, right? But my wife is completely different. She's like, she just thinks everybody's wonderful. In fact, I've had to save her a few times because of that. And, and along the way, it's kind of like, Karen, there actually are bad people in the world, you know, so it's good that we're married. I can help you from some of that. But I, she just, she has a different lens that she sees the world through. And it's just, talk about being unoffendable. It's just hard to offend my wife because she sees it that way. And I, I think that's it. Like, what if, so let's just say, experiment. All next week, no matter what anybody said to you, you took it in the affirmative, like, oh, it's okay. You know, even if it didn't sound real good, you just like went, oh, you know, I'm not going to be offended by that. And, and maybe I misinterpreted that. And maybe, maybe I made the wrong assumption. How might that change some of your most significant relationships in your life. And then ask for forgiveness where needed. The beautiful thing about asking for forgiveness, it's like a reboot. It's like a restart on a relationship. The moment somebody says, will you forgive me? It just changes everything. The other day I was with a friend of mine. I've known this guy for many, many, many years. And uh, we were... uh, having kind of a difficult relation, uh, conversation. And there was some tension in that conversation. We had a lot of history together. And, uh, and so we, we, we talked it out. We talked it out pretty good. And so by the time he dropped me off at my house, he looked at me and he said, hey, buddy, are we okay? And I said, yeah. He goes, I, and he asked me to forgive him. He says, just, just forgive me. And, and it, it just felt so good for me to hear those words because there, there had been some stuff, some tension. And, and I said, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for saying that. What if, what if we learned just to be really, really good at asking for forgiveness? Because here's the thing, it won't cost you a dime. It's absolutely free. And yet sometimes we're so reluctant to ask for forgiveness. How much better might our relationships get if we did that? And then, and then finally... Just give forgiveness where, where needed. I mean, somebody says, will you forgive me? Are you going to actually say no? 
what people do all the time. No, not ready. You hurt me too much. And we know what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we don't forgive, we don't get forgiven. And so we need to do that. So as, as we talked about this, here's what I want to leave you with. Is there anybody in your life right now that you're struggling with? Is there anybody that there's tension between you and that person? And how will you apply what we've learned today? Okay. Can't we all get along? Well, we've got to try anyway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that you, boy, you, you set the bar high. Lord, we, we think about how you were rejected, how you were mistreated, how you were misunderstood so often, how, how people were really offended by your words, Lord, and you just kept coming, you just kept loving, you just kept giving, you kept forgiving. And Lord, that's what we want to do. And sometimes we, we, we don't do it real well, but Lord, that's why we need to have a deeper relationship with you. So my first prayer is that everybody in here would consider where they're at with you today. And there may be somebody here today who says, you know, I just have, feel kind of like in a way I've sort of been breaking up with God. And today they would begin to move back towards you and realize that the only way that they can truly love is to actually know you. And that the more that they know you, the more they'll love. You'll change their heart. You'll give them compassion. So Lord, I pray also for those that are struggling, in particular with a, a, a person or persons in their life. God, give them Holy Spirit guidance right in this moment to call upon your name and say, oh God, help me to be able to deal with that relationship. Help me not to run. God, help me to be empathetic. Help me not to make wrong assumptions. But help me to just stay there and love that person. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you put a high premium on relationships and help us to love each other the way that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.